If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alex Von Tobel, and this week, I'm excited for you to meet Joe Thomas, co-founder and CEO of Loom, the video communication platform for async work. Joe leads Loom in its mission to empower effective communications wherever work happens. Joe co-founded the company in 2015 and has scaled it to over 21 million users with more than 215 million Looms recorded to date. Loom was named one of the 50 most innovative companies of 2023 Best, best Company and is valued at over $1.5 billion. Prior to Loom, Joe served as Director of Product at MyLife.com and Director of Operations at MediaPass. He also co-founded Redesign Agency while at Indiana University. Joe has been recognized by Forbes 30 Under 30, Forbes Cloud 100, and America's Best Startup Employers. He lives with his family today in Atlanta and his daughter, Margo. Let's welcome Joe. Let's just start at the beginning. First things first, what is Loom in your own words? Yes. So Loom is a asynchronous video communication platform, but let's make that a little less scientific. <laughs> you know, our, our mission statement is truly to empower effective communication via video messages at work. So when we were starting the company in 2015, we saw that visual communication was everywhere in the consumer landscape, but it wasn't anywhere in the work landscape. We were using Snapchat and Instagram day to day, and then we would go to work and use Microsoft Outlook, and one felt like the future, the other one felt like the past. And so we decided to see how we could bring video recording and sharing as a day-to-day communication tool to people at work. Take us back and talk about the aha moment to Loom in its current form. It's three co-founders. I was a product manager. CTO is engineer by trade. And our third co-founder, Shahid, was a designer. And we decided to start building together because we loved it. And we decided that it was time to put our skills to the test in terms of being founders. So we showed up to a whiteboard one Sunday, and we all had to bring three ideas to the table. And the one that we decided to choose and start building against was this video at work concept that I already touched on, which is that we felt like it wasn't as prevalent or the tools that were available were not very user-friendly at all. And so we did start as open test, as you talked about. We believe that there was a way to build a two-sided marketplace that allowed for, called product experts, design product manager, engineer at like Fang, and then also early stage startups of can you get advice and feedback on a product requirement doc, on a prototype, or even on like a live experience on your website. Now, the first aha moment that we had is that there wasn't a ton of opportunity within call it mid-market and enterprise organizations to pay for this two-sided marketplace because they were like, we already have these experts in-house. But what they did say was that we did build this video recording layer, which is like screen recording and a superimposed 
camera bubble. And they were like, we would love to have the sort of feedback from our real-time users. So we ended up building a JavaScript widget. It had NPS baked into it. And depending on how somebody answered, you would ask them if they would be willing to do video feedback on why they gave the score that they did. And we built a Chrome extension that allowed for that screen recording, camera bubble, and you would incentivize them saying, you can get 15% off at your checkout experience. And so incentivize users to record those videos. After building that for about like two to three months, what we found was that a lot of these companies who would see these videos said, I actually want to record these myself, right? Like I don't want to have to go through an NPS widget in order to record a screen recording with a camera bubble. And so we went back to CTO, he's the only engineer at the time. And we were like, hey, second major pivot. I know that you put the team on your back for five months now. Can we separate out the Chrome extension from the JavaScript widget and just provide a general recorder? And when we launched that on Product Hunt, and it was the first time that we launched there that it wasn't the 24-hour spike and then pretty much right back down to like minimal usage and engagement. With that, we were like, okay, we did it. We don't know exactly what we did. We built something that users are seeing value in and that it's growing on its own without these artificial marketing moments. And so that's when we started to get a crash course in terms of what change were we delivering to the world. Can you walk us through examples of how typical customers are using Loom? Give us like the range of the day-to-day and maybe even a use case that surprised you. It's interesting to think about the core value propositions of Loom where folks say it's the most effective way to explain something visually at work. And then the second most valuable value prop that we have for users is how do you help eliminate low value meetings or make meetings more valuable? And so how does that potentially show up in an actual use case? Let's take one of our primary ideal customer profiles, which is engineers. So they may use it three to four times a day, and it has a variety of use cases. You may run it into a bug on a website, and you just want to record a quick 30-second video and ship that off to your project management tool instead of having to write out the 10 or 12 steps that might take you 10 or 15 minutes. So it's just a really efficient way to document something in a visual way. And then that also leads to kind of like the effectiveness component, which is that if you explain something visually, it minimizes the back and forth. There's not nearly as much that's lost in translation. And so it makes for a very effective form of communication. Engineers don't love to go on meetings generally. And so what do they do if they want to show off their product demo historically? They did have to jump on a meeting and then maybe they have to show it to three or four different groups if they just built a new feature. And so instead of doing that, they can just record a Loom video and walk through what it is that they built, what are some of the user flows that they're still working on or some of the things that they're really proud of, and then they'll send that video out. So with that, it's like the last engineering use case is that, let's say that you just did a new Git repo and you want to walk through the logic in terms of why did you write the code the way that you did and provide that Loom link directly in the repo. So that way, if a new engineer needs to get up to speed on the code, it's this evergreen content that allows for training and onboarding in a really effective manner as well. And then the last thing that I'd say is like the expressiveness component, which you touched on, is that we did end up doing the camera bubble because we want to put people side by side with their work. You know, when you read a document, it's really hard to know like whose voice it is unless you're a world-class writer. But if you put somebody side by side next to their work, you're not going to misinterpret that like this is Alexa. 
and this is her amazing thoughts, and this is her emotion, this is her passion. And so that's a really, really important component of async video as a form of communication. Talk a little bit about, from your point of view, what makes the Loom product special, right? You know, in a market where there's so much competition, Loom broke through. Like when you look in the rearview mirror, what would you attribute that to in the product? You have to minimize friction to the best of your ability, right? So when we were starting, we believed that there was a huge gap in the market for async video at work. But when you looked at the general landscape, screen recording has been around for two decades. And also the ability to upload a video to various platforms like YouTube to distribute that video also have existed for a long time. What we did was we minimized the friction for the end-to-end communication flow. So we looked at it of record, edit, distribute via video player, that you can collaborate on that video, which is like a work purpose mechanism, and then the fit, the storage layer. And so we looked at the entire end-to-end communication flow And we just tried to minimize and make it simple, reliable, and fast. And when we did that, the first and most important thing, again, my co-founder and CTO putting us on his back, is that we have a patent on our video streaming infrastructure. So right when you're done recording a Loom, it pops open a web page that you can share that link immediately. So it took what used to take 10 minutes of uploading to Google Drive or YouTube or Dropbox to share a video. And it just compressed that into nothing, right? So then when you minimize that sort of friction in terms of recording and sharing, you're like, oh, I can use this in a bunch of different ways because I can record three or four times a day and that doesn't add up to 30 or 45 minutes of just waiting for it to upload. We really leaned into the human psychology side of what it is to communicate at work. One of the biggest wins that we ever had from an activation perspective is it's silly, but When the camera bubble loads, we just load a pithy statement of like, you look great today, or people love your smile with an emoji. And so we intentionally delay it by two or three seconds, even though it can be instant, just to mentally prep people to be like, oh, I'm going to put myself out there in the world because people love who you are. And so it's this combination of technical friction and solving it at every step while also understanding that from behavior change perspective, there's usually deep user psychology things that you need to address as well. I hate hearing my own voice. Um, So I think those subtle points, Joe, are really important to like just making people really comfortable with the product. Joe, what do you see that is possible and how we're going to work in five to 10 years? There are some things that you can actually reasonably predict. Like I would say it's the parallel of Moore's law, which is like, you know, what are the things that seem to be on this trend line that won't stop? And that was one of our, the early prediction around video was increasingly important. Like the reason why we decided to work in video is because not only was it the largest block of consumer internet traffic in 2015, but when we're looking at Mary Meeker's internet trends report in 2013, It was also the fastest growing over that two-year period in terms of percentage of internet traffic, which is similar to like Amazon and Bezos, where he was like, oh, internet traffic and e-commerce is like growing exponentially. We should get into this. So I think that these predictions, I just wanted to frame up the fact that like, I believe when Sequoia invested in our Series B in 2019, this is pre-COVID, this is like pre-pandemic. And so part of it was like this belief in video. But I also think that the other part that was accelerated, but is an unstoppable trend is this component of distributed work. 
Freedom and flexibility is how humanity has tended to trend over the last century. And I think that when we realized that we could do work from anywhere that was enabled by cloud software broadly, that this leaning into freedom and flexibility is what will continue to happen. Now, I think that there's very real kind of like back and forth that will continue to happen here. I'm still a deep believer in going into the office and like hanging out with your coworkers. But at the same time, I'm a remote CEO working from Atlanta because we had our first kid a year and a half ago and that we wanted to be back closer to family. And so what works best for you as an individual? And then what are the shapes of companies that need to take place from a policy perspective, from a square footage perspective? And then I think that the last thing that I have to touch on that I think is going to shake up pretty much everything in work is AI. Right. Like I know it's a buzzy topic <laughs> generally, but I think it could change fundamentally like the macro economics of what it means to build a business, how many people that you need to do it, what are the sorts of productivity and efficiency that you can have. And so I think that that's the one thing that I know it's going to change everything over the next 10 years, but I don't know exactly how. We're kind of in this like chaotic early phase that's like just kind of holding and waiting. When you think about a prediction or two around AI that you just think could be possible, name one, name two. So I think that uh, I'd talk about it in the context of Loom, of like think about video at work. I, I actually think it's going to be really hard to absorb a lot of, we actually have 95% of our knowledge is in our brains because it's so complicated to like document that and make it available to others. When I think about Loom, I believe that like recording video and sending it can be truly enabled and empowered. We now have auto titles and auto descriptions, but can you push that further in terms of what are the due dates of this? What are the next steps? Who's responsible for what, right? So can you like auto package up a loom in a way that you just literally sit down and start recording and maybe you ramble for 12 minutes? but we'll give you the compressed three or four minute version on the other side. So it truly leans into this like empowering effective communication. And so now I think that it also then starts to get into, well, there's companies out there that already do voice avatars and digital avatars. And so is there an ability to actually help individuals create content that humans on the other side have shown at scale that they prefer to consume video when they're given like a text versus video option. And so can you actually, with the click of a button, enable somebody to be able to have video to watch versus like a doc versus slides? And so to me, I think that there's this element of like, how do you make somebody five or 10x more productive by giving the consumer of information on the other side, every option to watch or consume? Because we learned as a child that there's audio learners, there's visual learners, like there's textual learners. And so when you can enable somebody to consume the information in the way that they prefer, I think that that enables information flow in the way that it should be, which is like, you know, lean into how somebody prefers to consume and learn. How did the pandemic impact the tool? Tell us some of the really surprising or kind of unique things that you were watching happen as we all had to go to this really, really forced way of working quickly. United States didn't. They, they were one of the first, but certainly not the first, right? So like Italy, South Korea, China were all early to do lockdowns. And we looked at our user metrics in terms of those countries. And we saw that there was 
a 10x increase in usage within them. And so what we believed was that we could actually provide meaningful value in a time of uncertainty. And so we made changes to the product platform. At the time, we only had one paid tier. But what we did was we carved out an education tier because we knew that students were all of a sudden going to be trying to learn from home and teachers were going to try and figure out how to actually do that. And then also people working from home, like async video can be really powerful. So essentially what we did was we carved out an education free and made it free in perpetuity. And then we also halved all of our like price per month for Loom Pro and we unlocked all of the limits on the platform. And the reason why we did this was, again, like truly to try and be helpful in a time when we saw that countries that were going through lockdown were using Loom. And so how can we be the best partner possible? And when we did that and we put that out, people were sharing like crazy in the early days of COVID about like, how do we all navigate this like together? And so, you know, our servers were on fire for like two months straight, you know, my co-founder and CTO and the rest of the engineering team were working around the clock in order to make sure that not only did we just make business changes, but like our technology and platform had to stay online. But then the question was, well, what about this back to office trend? And we were asking ourselves that question in early 2021, and we've had our strongest growth quarters ever since then. And so even as folks have gone back to in-office, either full-time or part-time, it really hasn't impacted our engagement metrics that we've been able to see. So that was like the early days of like, it was just keeping the servers on. Joe, one of the questions I want to ask you with async work, it occurred to me how silly it is to have 15 people sitting in a room where one person's talking, 14 people are just listening. It's such an inefficient use of time. It's silly. How do you think about that? Yeah, to be clear, we, from a like principles and practices perspective, I think build on the shoulders of giants. And so GitLab has the premier remote async work handbook. And so the number one most important practice that they shared there is adopt the mentality of if everybody was asleep right now, how would I continue to move this work forward? And so that to me is like, if you really want to lean into the asynchronous nature that you should just act like nobody's online. The reason why you do that is because content scales, but time does not. So if you spend the time to create content and you do it in a form of a doc, of a video, of a podcast, that is something that people can revisit and come back to over the course of time. And then the last thing that I would say is that by leaning into asynchronous and by having content documented, that you are actually being more inclusive with the way in which you work. Because in these sorts of meetings, we've all heard it before, but there's the loudest voice in the room, right? What percentage of time is somebody talking relative to others? Does that mean that others don't have really important ideas that they need to bring to the table? And are they just shy? They don't like to talk in group settings. And so from an asynchronous work perspective, you actually get the best of everybody's minds because you can actually get the best work done as a result of it. And so those are the three principles and practices. Mental model, why to do it from like a individualistic perspective, why to do it from a team perspective. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. 
Cardin knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Joe, I want to transition you know, to you a little bit here. Is it clear that you're going to be a founder? Like now that you're here in this role in Atlanta with a child, does this make sense to you? Are you like, I'm right where I thought I would be? No, but you could say that, like Steve Jobs, you know, you connect the dots looking backwards. And so I actually, growing up in Illinois, I didn't fully perceive the fact that we actually had a relatively entrepreneurial family on both sides, which is that, you know, my grandpa on my mom's side had his own paper printing business, like he would create custom napkins for local restaurants. Right? And on my dad's side, I had an uncle that had a local cable hunting channel that he was running himself. This entrepreneurial spirit was always kind of around, but I didn't really perceive of like, oh, I definitely want to do it myself. The Illinois question and like growing up around an entrepreneurial family, I didn't realize that until I was starting Bloom. I was like, why? Why is there this like drive to be my own business owner? And the joking thing that I like to say is that like I... It was too big of a pain in the butt to my former employers that like I had to be my own boss. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why I had to start my own company. Joe, is there something that your parents did that you think helped make you so talented? I mean, I think that the one thing that I would say is like there's a yin and yang to being a founder and business owner. Like I think that you have to have a little bit of a screw loose. And so I would say that my childhood wasn't the easiest from end to end. And I think that there was this component of like self-reliance that needed to happen in order to be a business owner and founder. But I also think that they both instilled really, really important principles in me, which is like my dad, his dad, my grandpa on my dad's side was a on the PGA for about five, six years. And that was in the early days where like you had to drive all around the country. It was not like glamorous lifestyle at all. And he was a super hard worker. He like pushed my dad very hard as well. And I think that that hard work mentality, which is like, you can get anything done if you like really put your mind to it, is something that I believe deeply in. And I think that he instilled at a young age. And then my mom is like truly one of the most empathetic, bleeding heart individuals. She'll give herself and her time to like anyone at any time. And so like the combination of those two things, I think, is like really what makes up a core part of who I am today or who I aspire to be. You've said that to lead a company, you have to see your job as serving others. What are your best tips for being an effective servant leader? Pay it forward to us. Over the course of time, I've really grown to appreciate what Jeff Weiner has called like compassionate leadership, which being a good leader overall and like a servant leader is that sometimes you need to like show up and just hear someone out from a human to human perspective. They're having a tough day. They're dealing with something in their personal life. They're having a tough time with a coworker, right? And like, can you actually be that person that listens? And if that's all they need is like somebody to talk to, right? I think that that can be really powerful from a relational bonding perspective and from a trust perspective. 
But I also think that from a compassion perspective, it's not just ruinous empathy. It's also, can you help them and coach them through a specific moment in time? And like, sometimes it's good to be a little bit tough love with folks. And so I think that that's also a part of servant leadership, which is like, don't always just be there to be a shoulder to cry on. As CEO and as being a leader and being responsible to all shareholders of the business, you also need to help people get out of their own way sometimes. And that's what I found is like a lot of people just have self-limiting beliefs and you got to give them a little bit of a push. And so my kind of growth is really leaning into that coaching component and how that shows up in my time. It's like Mondays are all about one-on-ones for like all my direct reports and some skip levels. Like I'll spend six, seven hours. And I know that that sounds radically inefficient, especially for an asynchronous company. But I do think that there's an element of like just being there for them. And I actually let them drive the agenda. Like I'm not the one, I'll push context to them, but I'm also just there to help them solve problems to the best of my ability. And then, you know, the rest of the week, we're solving issues together that were raised on Monday. What have you learned about managing risk now that you're, call it, let's almost a decade in? That the role of the CEO is risk mitigation, which is the fact that it's fundamentally a resource allocation role, right? Whether it is actual dollar capital, whether it is human capital, everything has opportunity cost. And what you need to understand is what is the maximally beneficial short, mid, and long-term path to take. And a lot of times that should be you're pulled from the market to go a certain direction. And what I'd say is that there's a little bit of hubris over the course of 2020 and 2021 where you're building a lot of products, like you had a lot of capital, you felt like you had infinite resources. And ultimately, what I've learned from a risk mitigation perspective is what is the actual impact size of how we're spending these dollars or this, like the people on the team? And what is our confidence score associated with that? What is the research and data that backs it up? And ultimately, that is the role of a CEO. What I would really, you know, for those listening, that are like early stage founders or CEOs, really adopt this mental model of I am a capital allocator, right? And I need to make sure that those dollars are used to the best of my ability. And that's what risk mitigation is. How do you manage stress? How have you learned to manage stress? How do you cope? You need to take care of your, your personal health first. The first thing is like good night's sleep, right? Like everything is built from good sleep. The second thing is like, I have to exercise. You know, like weightlifting is the thing that makes me feel best, but like cardio is also good to sweat things out. I think a lot about what I put into my body of like consuming. Uh, And so like trying to eat healthy to the best of my ability, drinking smoothies every day. And then the last thing that I'd say is like find inspiration, whatever that is for you. Because for me, now that I have a 15 month old daughter, she is just the light of my worlds and she's so fun to play with. And yes, like babies are exhausting, but Now I've found this new form of inspiration where it used to be I had to go on a hike, like I had to go to a museum or like go see artwork from a certain artist. But now I just walk out my office door and I got Margot and like, that's all the inspiration I need. As a founder, is there something you hold as sacred? Trying to truly build the most value for humanity during my time on earth and doing it with a team that I love. Those are the things that I feel like as we've like vacillated over the course of like seven years is just leaning into those two things and making sure that you're living up to them to the best of your ability, I think is the thing that I've 
hold most sacred at this point after seven years. Um, Joe, we're going to move to the quick fire round. I'm going to ask you a question. First thing that comes to your head, we'll go fast. Uh, best interview question you like to ask? I think that there's an interview holistically called a top grading interview. Uh, if you haven't heard about it before, it actually walks people through their life story and why they made certain decisions at certain points in their career. And a lot of times you hear on the other side of conducting this interview, like, wow, I've never been through something like this before. And I actually learned something about myself through the structure of these questions. And you get a true understanding of why somebody made the decisions that they did. And like that'll get you to their core characteristics and what drives them. Any quote that matters to you? Might be a little bit morbid, but memento mori, I think, is just something that basically means we're all going to die one day. And to me, that is really powerful and potent if you're like sitting there and doom scrolling on Twitter or Instagram. It's like, is this what you'd choose to do if you truly knew that you were going to die at some point? And so it shakes me out of, am I being lethargic or am I spending my time and attention most valuably? So I know it's a little bit morbid, but I've found it to be a really powerful, like, come on, spend the time the, the way that you want to. Your biggest pinch me moment to date at Loom? It was when there was a wall-to-wall purchase at like a 10,000 plus employee company that was Atlassian. And I was like, email exchanging back and forth with the co-CEOs. And they're like, yeah, we're in, let's do this. Like we believe deeply in Loom and what value it could provide. And I remember like, you know, basically running home uh, and being like, Maggie, like we did it. A book that's changed your life. It's called The Information by James Glick. And it goes to the very like beginnings of what you could say is borderline information theory, but so jaw-droppingly relevant for Loom. And I learned about core principles about what does it mean to be a communication company that like that was a profound like perspective shifting book for me. I love that. Joe, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you haven't already made many looms, you should check out loom.com. And you can join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alex von Tobel. Joe, thank you for changing the way that we all work. We're rooting for you. And this has just been such a delightful interview. You have so much heart and soul behind everything that you do. And it's just really, really inspiring. Alexa, thank you so much for having me on and for the amazing interview.